Hi, welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. I'm your host, Natalie Benet, and today I'm welcoming a very special guest and friend, Josh Summer. He is the executive director of the Cordoma Foundation, and like I mentioned, a friend. So we're doing this podcast over the break, and both of us are just going to go at this thing. What did you call it, Josh? Freestyling? No, we're going to riff. Yeah. We're going to riff. That's going to be the title. Freestyle works also. We're going to title it, We're Going to Riff. I've asked Josh here because he has had a very interesting life experience, and I think telling this story is powerful and inspirational, but also Josh is really funny, so that's another great reason to talk to him. So, Josh, would you like to introduce yourself and tell people, since I introduced you as the Executive Director of the Cordoma Foundation, would you like to talk about that first? What the heck is Cordoma? Sure. Uh, Well... (laughs) Uh, well, a lot of people listening to this will probably know what Cordoma is, but they probably won't know what your foundation is. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, great to be here. So I never would have imagined that I would be the executive director of the Cordoma Foundation uh, because Cordoma was certainly not something that I went seeking out. It came to me. So when I was an undergrad, when I was a freshman at Duke, which is, I guess, ultimately how we're connected when your husband, Max, and I were both there. I started coming down with unexplained headaches, which ultimately led me to get an MRI. And much to my surprise, that MRI revealed that I had a mass in the center of my head on my clivus. And I guess, you know, the punchline, it turned out to be a a cordoma. We actually didn't know what it was initially before having it resected, but ultimately was fortunate to have a very, very good resection. I was able to get the whole tumor out. But upon learning more about Cordoma, the fact that it has a high recurrence rate and you know no real effective treatments should the tumor come back, it, it really was a, a kind of a set of a set of odds that I, I wasn't really ready to accept and became determined to try to do anything in my power to change those odds and to create better options should the tumor come back. I had no idea where that was going to lead or what needed to be done or even what could be done, but essentially started kind of putting one foot in front of the other and just reading and learning as much as I could about the disease and what was known about it, what treatments had been tried, what things were kind of on the horizon. And it was it was somewhat demoralizing because from from what I was able to read online or from going on PubMed at the time back in 2006, there was really very little known about Cordoma. There was, you know, you know mo- most of the papers on Cordoma at that point were essentially case series, mm-hmm. you know, describing you know, describing the disease, describing the outcome of you know, a series of patients. So it was very, very little in terms of kind of true biology of the disease, understanding its drivers, and you know, there was virtually nothing about new therapeutic development. There, there was actually at that point one clinical trial that had ever been completed and published. One and clinical one, trial? One clinical trial that had ever been done in Cordoma oh in 2006. Uh-huh. But one thing that caught my eye is it seemed as though there was there was some hints about what might be causing uh, familial Cordoma. So there's, there's kind of a handful of families that have been identified that uh, have multiple members affected by Cordoma. And, and mm-hmm. there was a study that had been ongoing at the National Cancer Institute for probably about 10 years at the time, trying to determine 
what was responsible for that genetic susceptibility. And they'd published a couple papers. They were doing linkage analysis, trying to figure out like what was the, the locus that Cordomo associated locus. They had, they had kind of narrowed it down, but hadn't, hadn't actually figured out what gene or genes were, were responsible. But what was interesting about that paper or those papers was that there was a co-author on those papers that happened to be an oncologist at Duke mm. uh, named Michael Kelly, who I later learned was actually the only MIH-funded Cordoma researcher in the entire country. And he happened to be right in my backyard at Duke. So, and is that where you had your surgery? Was it Duke? So I actually had surgery in Pittsburgh. Mm. And mm-hmm. so Duke has... I mean, you know, they're they're known for their strength in neurosurgery and yes. and neurooncology. Ted Kennedy went there, didn't he? Yeah, I that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. in fact, I was <laughs> I yeah, I was I was there when he when he was there. Yeah. But interestingly, so chordomas are uh, they're skull based tumors, and mm. um, and 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 so you know, certainly there are. I'm, you know, they're, they're very strong neurosurgeons at Duke who uh, are qualified to, to tackle cordomas, but um, uh, you know, they're, they're best dealt with uh, by uh, by surgeons who are really experienced in accessing that part of the, the skull base, that part of sure, the- sure. And it's probably hard to aggregate enough of these kinds of cases to have high volume in a bunch of places, right? It's probably pretty localized to some a few centers, I would imagine. So, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so interestingly, I mean, a little sidebar here, but in the U.S. at least, much of the expertise in in accessing uh, that part of the head, so accessing tumors of the skull base, mm-hmm. kind of was developed. At the University of Pittsburgh, in the kind of late '80s, early '90s, there were some ENTs and neurosurgeons who got together and pioneered some some new, less invasive techniques using microscopes or endoscopes as opposed mm-hmm. to open approaches, and that increased the the kind of optionality for accessing pre- what, what what was previously difficult to reach tumors, and mm-hmm. and dramatically decreased the morbidity that was associated with it. So. So a lot of the skull-based uh, surgeons throughout the country, you know, can trace their, their 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 training in some way back to back to Pittsburgh. They either trained to Pittsburgh or they trained with someone who trained to Pittsburgh. Now th- that expertise has become more disseminated, and so you know, they're probably you know a, a good half or a third of the large academic medical centers have really strong skull-based programs now. I would say, mm-hmm. but but you know, but it is still a I'd say a relatively niche subspecialty within uh, neurosurgery and head and neck, uh, head and neck surgery. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt. You were talking about Dr. Kelly's laboratory, I think is where you were headed with finding him on a paper, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I detoured you. Yeah. So I, I was, was just thrilled to see that you know, maybe there was someone doing something in my backyard at Duke. And my natural instinct was to try to learn what he was doing and see if there's anything that I might be able to do to help. I I didn't really have anything in the anything to offer in the way of skills. I I was you know I was at that point I had just finished my freshman year. I was in the school of engineering, hoping to become an engineer. So I you know, I, I didn't know really the first thing about cancer research, or I hadn't taken biology since I think eighth grade or something. But Dr. Kelly was very gracious and agreed to meet. And I remember meeting in the library on a Sunday, and I think he had just come from playing basketball or something. So. You know, it was just kind of this very informal first first interaction. But I was 
uh, very encouraged by hearing about the work that he was doing. He, he was doing you know, more than just the familial cordoma work. He's trying to try to trying to uh, do some, some some drug testing to identify potential uh, therapeutics for cordoma, and had a bunch of other ideas about other things that could be done, but had no funding and really had no one to work on these projects. So I said, okay, well, you know, if I if an extra pair of hands can be helpful, sign me up. I would love to. I, I would love to help in whatever way. And, and, you know, longer term, I, I can try to work on the fundraising piece and, you know, kind of, I guess the rest is history. I showed up in his lab a week later or so, and kind of asked to be put to work. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, to be honest. And, and a lot really of great had- beginnings start that way. It's okay. I think <laughs> as long as the will is strong, right. I think that's at least over half of the equation in my opinion, but I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly a lot of motivation and yeah. a lot of, I mean, I think in retrospect, naivete, not knowing what I didn't know, not knowing mm-hmm. what, what wasn't possible or what shouldn't be possible. And, you know, I, I found the work to be incredibly enthralling. I, I you know, basically spent all my free time in the lab and ultimately kind of did that for a semester. And then Dr. Kelly, we had a conversation and he said, look, you, you really would benefit from understanding the science behind what you're doing. So I was, I was culturing cells and doing PCR and things of that nature, but I didn't really understand the science behind it. I was going through the motions. I was following a protocol. And I think typically it's the opposite. Typically you like, you, you know, have some background in biology and then you go into the lab. But anyway, so, so I, he, he recommended that I actually take some biology classes. And so I did, and I found them to be just absolutely fascinating, inspiring in a way that I hadn't expected. I, I think I had a unjustified aversion to or prejudice against biology. I thought it was this kind of squishy or fl- fluffy science in comparison <gasps> to- Fluffy? How interesting. <laughs> what, what would you consider non-fluffy science back in those days? Well, I mean- Physics? Well, yeah, I mean, oh, because you were an engineer. Oh, 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 okay. So you're like, if it doesn't involve equations, keep it. I get it. I get it. Okay, it, got it. It seemed it seemed unpredictable, a little hand wavy, but but you know, I think I've subsequently come to realize that there's you know just a, ex, extraordinary elegance and sophistication that is kind of implicit in or reflected in biological systems, and they can be understood at a mechanistic level. And when you have that understanding, really amazing things are possible. So it, it really got me fired up. And, and in the end, the biology classes that I took at Duke were my favorite classes, and I still stay in touch with my biology professors. So I, I, really, you know, I guess I, I caught the bug and I became really, uh, really inspired. And that only, I think, increased my motivation to, to work in the lab. So, so I, you know, I was I was kind of really falling in love with the science and becoming very enthralled with the work that we were doing, and it started to, kind of the motivation started to shift from, okay, I'm doing this to outrun my disease to, I'm doing this because this is actually really interesting and this is a problem that I want to solve, but we ran into some some hurdles. We were we were trying to do some experiments in that required cordoma cell lines. And we had one cell line in the lab, and that was great. But we needed, you know, we needed to replicate uh, our experiments, and so we went to the literature and tried to see what other cell lines were available. And it turns out, in the end, there were like five or six cell lines we were able to acquire from different labs across the world, 
one in lab in China and Canada, Italy, Germany, et cetera. And as they, as these cell lines came in and I put them into culture and started working with them, it was really strange in that they all behaved differently. They all looked differently under the microscope. Hmm. Uh, they were all giving me different results. And so I, oh, I is the punchline that some of them weren't Cordoma? Yeah. And in fact, so, I mean, the one that everyone thinks of is Gila. And in the end, one of them was Gila, but mm. one of them was a neuroblastoma cell line. Uh, one of them, if you can believe it, was a mouse cell line. Oops. Yeah. So, mm. so that really limited what we were able to do, but it did, I think, it did a couple of things. First of all, it made a light bulb go off for me, which was that like to realize that, okay, so these cell lines are out there circulating. No one is uh, sort of validating them, is validating yeah. them yeah. and ensuring that the data that is generated and put in the, in the literature about Cordoma is based upon actual models of Cordoma. So they're, right. they're, the somehow the scientific enterprise was was failing or the, the, it was failing to error correct. And that might be fine if the goal is to publish papers. But of course, that's not what I, you know, what I had an interest in. My, my goal was to try to solve this problem that had, had come my way. And, and it was really clear that if we didn't have valid models to work with as a starting point, we were never going to learn anything relevant about the disease and ultimately find treatments that we were after. So so that was that was kind of this wake up call and and a pretty jarring uh, experience. Aside from that, you know, even even if had we had the models we needed, we were really limited in terms of funding. We were basically working in complete isolation. We had, really had no one to collaborate with or to compare notes with. And it became clear to me that, yeah, sure, I could stay in the lab and maybe learn some interesting things and you know, publish papers, but. But ultimately, to solve this problem, to find better treatments for this disease was going to require many, many more labs bringing their efforts and expertise to bear on this disease, ultimately getting companies involved, a much larger coordinated effort that uh, no single lab could muster on its own. Right. And, and so that realization essentially led me to take a, take a step back and say, okay, what, what needs to be done to bring that about? And you know, there were several things that were obvious. So one was funding. There needed to be a way to fund that. There needed to be some sort of mechanism by which researchers that were interested in Cordoma or how to develop an expertise could get access to the materials that they needed. Uh, there needed to be some way for researchers to share results and for coordination and collaboration to occur. And kind of all of those things pointed to starting an organization. And clearly, you know, we're, we're we're not the first to come, you know, to, to do this. We we had the benefit of being able to look at the successes of of quite a number of of, of disease specific organizations that have blazed the path that we could follow in, you know, over the the previous decades, and and we're very fortunate to have a, a number of mentors in in other rare disease organizations. What's an example of a rare disease organization? I don't, I don't want to make you, you know, pick favorites, but who are you looking to, or just you want to name a few? Yeah. Were so, they other cancers or? Yeah. So a, a few that were real role models. A, a well, a well-established organization was the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. I mean, so they've been sure. around for many, many years, and and mm-hmm. 
you know, at that point, and, and certainly today, they're, they're not a small organization. They're, they are a, a big enterprise. A, a kind of a more like-sized or analogous organization, it was called the Progeria Research Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, another one was the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. So that, that was obviously a cancer. started mm-hmm. about seven or eight years before the Cordoma Foundation. They've been wildly successful. Interestingly, not a lot of others in oncology for whatever mm. reason, but, but interestingly, there were, we kind of quickly connected with some, some peer organizations who were kind of of a similar vintage, so to speak. So there's the Adenoid Cystic Carcinoma Research Foundation. There's an organization at the time that was called the Caring for Carcinoid Foundation. Now it's called, I think it's the Carcinoid Research uh, Foundation, if I'm, or, uh, excuse me, the, the Neuroendocrine Tumor Research Foundation. Because we can't stop renaming neuroendocrine tumors every five years. That's unfortunate <laughs> for them. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> Poor neuroendocrine uh, people. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, so they, they've turned out to be like really great peers. And mm-hmm. I'd say that the three of us, and there's also the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation. So maybe it's called mm. the four of us. We've, we've all kind of, we were all started right around the same time and we've all kind of grown up together. And learned a lot from each other along the way, you know, learned from each other's successes and failures and who's good to work with and who's not good to work with. And, oh, you solved this problem that way. Maybe we could do the same. So there's been a lot of really great kind of knowledge exchange and, and learning from each other along the way. But I guess to maybe to skip ahead. So, you know, that was 2007 that we started the Cordoma Foundation. We, we've always had basically a dual mission. So number one, uh, is to lead the search for a cure and, and as importantly, and, and simultaneously to improve the lives of those affected by Cordoma. Because you know, even absent better treatments, which we're obviously working towards, there's a lot that could be done to improve the experience of patients who are going through it, to make it easier to get an accurate diagnosis, to get appropriate treatment, to deal with all of the quality of life issues that that the treatment or the disease can can impart to just get the emotional support that you need. So that, that's always been part of what we've done. At, at first, it was, they were, we thought of them as kind of separate uh, and, and kind of work along parallel and non-interacting tracks. And at the outset, we were a tiny organization and needed to focus as so we focused largely on research. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, what we've uh, come to see is that the the patient services side of what we do is actually turns out to be really integral to actually realizing the potential that the research has to offer. So specifically to enabling uh, new treatments to be tested in the clinic, number one. Number two, learning about the natural history of the disease. Number mm-hmm. three, obtaining the biospecimens that are needed to actually be able to do meaningful research. So so we kind of see them as being integrally linked and kind of mutually reinforcing. And, and so now that is a much bigger part of what, of what we do relative to when we started. Still research is, I'd say, uh, you know, predominates. But, but yeah, we've come kind of a long way in, in the last 13 years now. We've gone from knowing essentially nothing about the biology of the disease, as I mentioned, to having learned a lot about kind of the key drivers of the disease, its vulnerabilities, potential therapeutic targets, yeah. tested uh, many, many drugs preclinically, and, and that has led to the initiation of seven new clinical trials. 
mm-hmm. uh, compared to the, the one uh, that we had back in the day. That's impressive. I mean, that's like moving mountains. So seven clinical trials. That's no, granted, these are these are for the most part repurposed drugs. So it's not as though right. you know these drugs have been developed for cordoma. Right, but um, at least they're being looked at in the correct context now. Right, they're not sort of being used and maybe uh, not off label. That's probably the wrong word. Oncologists are listening; they'll cringe. But just like being moved over from another tumor, and now that we actually know how they're tracking it, right? Yeah, so, no, off label is exa- exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So you. You also, so you basically started off as an engineering student, which I wouldn't maybe have picked off a menu having known you post all of this happening to you. Cause I guess I would have met you in, oh man, 2010 probably. So yeah, 2010. And then you studied biology. You started this foundation. So you kind of took yourself from an engineering student to someone who realized in my opinion that biology is the best science. And then then you turned into basically an almost like an entrepreneur, although maybe that's a Silicon Valley term for what you do. But you you had to figure out how to hire someone to do fundraising. You were at one point you were in New York, like you were hobnobbing, for lack of a better word. You were traveling around all the time. Did you learn that as you went or you said you were kind of learning from your peers and things? But how how does how was the learning curve on that kind of stuff? I can't imagine doing that. So it's totally foreign to me. Yeah. I mean, I'll, to be totally honest, there's a lot of flying by the seat of your pants and okay. trying to ingest as much as possible from from observing what others are doing, what has been successful for others. Okay. Uh, a lot of trial and error, a lot of you know, not doing it right and then correcting. I mean, I think the biggest thing is is just being really good at trying to be really good at least at, at error correcting is okay. you know and, and and not needing to be a pro or to be perfect to try and each try leads to some learning and if you, you know, get enough tries then ultimately you know I think practice makes perfect I I guess mm-hmm. is, is kind of what it what it amounts to. Yeah. yeah, I'd say the other thing though is that our ambitions at the outset were were much more modest. Mm. I think it's really easy in retrospect to say, "Oh yeah, we had grand visions of curing this disease, and you know that we knew what that would look like." But I mean, truthfully, it was it was about solving the problems that were in front of us at first, and and sure. and it was the ones that I mentioned that we faced in the lab. So right, models, cell lines, and then sort of snowballed from there, basically. Exactly, and yeah. There's just every step of the way, there have been kind of new opportunities that have arisen, new challenges that have arisen, and we couldn't have necessarily predicted them at the outset. And we certainly couldn't have been prepared for what it was going to take to address them. Mm-hmm. But I think just being, you know, being comfortable with not being an expert and, and acknowledging that, and like, and I think kind of taking a, you know, or yeah, just a, a, a acknowledging our own lack of expertise and an experience, I think create, made it, created a, it maybe was disarming or, or invited people to provide, people who did know what they're doing to provide guidance and, you know, and steer us in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, Humility, it sounds like was also a big part of what you're talking about, basically, which I feel all the time 
in academics, maybe not that dissimilar. The other thing I'm wondering is chordoma is not a very common diagnosis. I I have made the diagnosis one time in my life. I did in community practice for a while, but it's an uncommon tumor, right? But do you think by now, or maybe this is something you're still doing and you can talk about how this happened. Do you think when physicians, neurosurgeons, oncologists, pathologists hear the word chordoma, are they reaching out to you all? Does the Chordoma Foundation not just provide, you're talking about providing emotional and social support, but also just centralizing the experience. Is this something, are you synonymous now with Cordoma? Does that make sense? Am I putting too much um, expectation on you unfairly or something? Yeah, it really varies. I mean, many patients find us just through doing a Google search. So if you search Cordoma, uh-huh. we're the first thing that comes up. Okay. But I, it's really interesting, The, I guess, the relation that community, like doctors in community practice or you know, those who are not Cordoma experts, I would say, have with the, the foundation. Some of them say, you know, I don't know anything about this. Like, you know, go look online or here, you know, maybe they, they'll, well, before they're coming into a patient's room, they'll Google Cordoma and they'll, you know, print out something about the, on the foundation's website and hand it to their patients. But we've had that happen before. Okay. But to be honest, it doesn't happen as much as I would imagine. Like the, the, the doctors that, that we do work closely with that are like that treat a lot of cordoma patients, by and large, there's a very strong two-way referral. Like we refer patients to them, they send patients to us for kind of the community and, and patient services aspect of things. But but we don't get that many referrals from just kind of doctors out in the community where patients might initially be diagnosed. And I don't But the patients are finding you themselves. That's very interesting to me because there's so much garbage on the internet for patients, but I imagine it's apparent pretty quickly when they look at your website that you all are on the up and up. So they reach out to you and then do they ever say, I have this, where should I go get treated? That kind of stuff is happening. Yeah, that's mm. that's a big part of what we do now. Mm-hmm. We have a patient navigation service. Wow. We actually have two full-time folks on our patient navigation team um, who are day in, day out, you know, getting multiple inquiries per day uh, from patients, from family members, from all over all the world. All around the world? All over the world, yeah. That's amazing. I don't remember what the number now. I think we're up to like 70 or 80 different countries uh, that oh, we've wow. we've had inquiries from. And, you know, we, we don't provide medical advice. We're very clear about that. We don't sure. say which doctors you should go to, but we have a doctor directory that has specialists so mm-hmm. neurosurgeon, or skull-based surgeons, spine surgeons, oncologists, radiation oncologists, et cetera, who meet a certain set of criteria that have been established by a medical advisory board. Sure. And, and so basically point patients to the doctor directory. And you know, if they are looking for someone in a particular area, we can say, okay, you know, in, in New York, there are these doctors that really have experience with Cordoma, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it, it is really, really important to be treated in, in most cases, maybe there's there's some you know, small tumors that are, are you know in, in the coccyx, for example, that are easy, relatively easily resected. But for the most part, mm-hmm. a skull-based tumor or you know a high sacral tumor really should be should be treated at a high volume center by someone who, who sees a lot of cordomas. And sure. you know over the years we've become connected with basically all of them, certainly in the U.S. 
and and most of the centers in Europe and Canada and um, increasingly now in in Asia, there's an amazing number of very high volume centers that have emerged in China in the last decade. Mm. Wow, so that's interesting. So you're doing that at the same time. So if you want to follow up on the cell line story, I'm going to expose myself as not a bench scientist here. You had the cell lines, which you said at least two of the five that you ended up having were something else, and one of them was contaminated. Yeah, only one of them turned out to be Kordama. Oh, that hurts. That's like a blow to the chest. So if you want to make a cell line, can you do that from patient tissue if you get it fresh? So have you been able to solve that problem? Because if people are reaching out to you, it seems like that's a good way to, you know, if you talk to patients directly, they can request their tissue for you, right? Isn't that, that's a way it can work. I'm not saying it's the only way it can work, but it's one way, right? That's exactly right. And we found that to be quite effective. Interestingly, so for creating cell lines, we we found the most effective tool or approach for developing new cell lines was to offer a prize. Because... A prize? A prize, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so it was the story of the, the first cell line that was created, it, it originated at a university in Southwest Germany uh, called the University of Ulm, which is this lovely town, not known for a whole lot other than the fact that it was the birthplace of Einstein. And well, they have they've got that going for them. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and they actually right. have, they have a, a very good university and a medical yeah. center there. And there was a pathologist there named Peter uh, Muller and cell culturist that he had working with him named Silke Bruderlein. And she was a was was kind of in stereotypical German fashion, just the most meticulous person you can imagine. Com- good good for things like cell lines, yes. Completely dedicated to her work. Yeah. Uh-huh. Prided herself in being able to, to culture things that no one else could culture. She had they had no particular interest in Cordoma whatsoever. They basically just cultured things that were interesting to them. And so we early on, you know, basically pleaded with them, but could we find a way to get you more tumor tissue? Could we find a way to get you some money so you could focus on Cordoma? And they were not interested. I mean, this was like not, Cordoma was not their thing. Uh-huh. But, you know, clearly they, she proved that it could be done. So, so we're like, okay, we don't have a lot of money to offer. We don't know who else we're going to fund, you know, and, and she had told us that her success rate was low. I don't remember what it was, but it was, you know, maybe one in 10 or so tumors that she put in culture turned out actually to, to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and so we said, okay, so how do we get a lot more people trying this and, and, and including people that we don't even know, like maybe there's other people like Silke in other places who are also really good at creating cell lines. And maybe if there was some way to get their attention, maybe they would try putting Cordomas in culture as well. So, um, so you decided to have a sweepstakes, basically. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So we said, you know, okay. if, if you can create a Cordoma cell line that passes certain validation criteria, then we will give you $10,000, which is like... It, realistically that's like that's not a lot of money that's not like that doesn't even cover the cost of creating a cell line hardly but what it turned out to be was a signal that Mm -hmm. hey this is something that's important it's interesting and it's a little bit of a challenge 
And so amazingly, a lot of people tried their hand at it. And, and so we had, you know, people submit lines from Austria and from Canada and from, from the UK, from Italy, from all over. And, and over time, interestingly, we, you know, we had, we, we, we put on uh, research conferences and the group from Germany, they finally agreed they'd come over to the research conference and they presented upon, on, on their approach, like detailed methodology for how she did it. And you know, other groups took notice and, Anyway, in our initial goal was 10 cell lines and we we kind of slowly, you know, maybe after a year we had one and two years we had two and then all of a sudden there started to be like a bigger wave of more cell lines because I think you know people had been trying it for maybe a couple of years. So I think we crossed 10 cell lines maybe in like 2013 or 2014 and now actually last year we just crossed 20. 20 validated cell lines. So it, yeah, that- And they're uh, yours? You you have them or do you, I don't understand, says people can request them from you? Yeah, so we've centralized them. And uh-huh. at first, yeah, the well, at first they were actually being distributed out of Duke. So we had, okay. we, you know, we, we set up a material transfer agreement with the with the, the institution that created them. And then uh-huh. on behalf, we distributed them and Duke basically kind, kindly did that for us. Ultimately, uh-huh. it got the, the volume got to be bigger. So we, we set up an arrangement with ATCC, which ultimately made a lot more sense because that's where people are going to look for cell lines anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's a Cordoma collection at ATCC now, and we try to get all the cell lines. Can you explain what ATCC is for? Oh, sure. It's uh, American yeah. Type Culture Collection. Okay. Uh, which essentially it's the largest repository of cell lines and cell lines, mammalian cell lines, as well as I think they have like insect cell lines and like microbial cultures, et cetera. But they have distribution like all over the world. So if Mm -hmm. if you're in ATCC's catalog, then pretty much researchers anywhere can get access to these lines. And and they are rigorous in, in terms of like making sure that whatever is in their inventory is well, at the very least, you know, it's mycoplasma free. It's it's what you know has the genotype of the of the cell line that you think it is. It's not contaminated with HeLa or something. Okay, um, that must be a stressful place to work. But yeah, I bet they have good protocols. But you know what I mean? That's, that's I bet they have a lot of cross checks and things. Gosh, how stressful! They're yeah. very very rigorous. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we 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 try to get all the cell lines to ATCC, but for kind of boring legal reasons, there's some cell lines that can't go to ATCC. And as a backup or an alternative, we've set up our own private repository that kind of bypasses the ATCC catalog. And mm-hmm. and that has enabled us to distribute cell lines basically directly from the foundation to investigators. Um, and, and now we've sent, so we've sent cell lines now to something like 120 labs or companies across the world now. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. Gosh. And it all started off with you tinkering around in a lab. I think tinkering is the right word for what you were doing. Um, I'd, before I'd, you say, I'd, I'd say that was fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I did in labs, at least in undergraduate. That's very interesting. What a journey you've been on. So then I'm also looking at your CV and seeing that you, you're you also, you've gotten honors and awards. I want to talk a little bit about this. I would imagine that along with the things you did not expect you'd be doing, being the executive director of the Cordoma Foundation, doing things like fundraising and glad handing, you're also in the media. 
you know, you're, you're a Forbes. I don't want to get this wrong. You've been a lot of things in Forbes, 30 under 30. You're not 30 any, you're not under 30 anymore, but anyway, you were a fellow. So was there a learning curve there as well? Or did you ease your way into that? Or is it still weird? Or maybe all of the above? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a a surreal period Uh of time. Uh, yeah, I mean, because the, the Forbes thing, like, you don't really know that you've been nominated until until you're you get it, uh-huh. and then yeah, it was like it came out of totally came out of left field, not like something that you apply for. So and somebody then, had to nominate you. Yeah, and it's secret. Do you know who it was? No, I don't know. <gasps> okay. I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was a very what's the word? I don't know. Energizing and like. It was just a lot of, it felt like a lot of mystique around it, I guess, at that mm-hmm. time. You know, they like fly you up to New York, oh, that time they fly up to New York and they do this like photo shoot. And I think it was like the first time that I ever had makeup put on me. And it's <laughs> like, like very, very chic suit. I realized that like I am really need to up my game when it comes to. Uh, they gave you a suit to wear? Uh, well, they, they put me in one for the photo shoot, but not, not to keep. Uh, okay, so so they were like, "This is what you're." Oh, so you're like a model. You showed up. They were like, "You're going to be wearing this," and you were like, oh, "Did you have to send them your measurements?" I have so many questions about this. Or did they just have a rack? No, they just they had a rack. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it was a photo shoot. You had makeup on. I'm sure yeah. you were interviewed at least yeah, one time. Inter- interviewed, yeah. but you know, I have to say that the the folks at Forbes and and I guess the way they set it up was each kind of editor within. Forbes, the editor of a particular topic or domain, they were responsible. There was an editor that was assigned to each category within the 30 under 30. So mm-hmm. to be clear, it's not, it, it's actually 30 under 30, maybe it's a little bit misleading because it's actually 30 under 30 in each of, I don't know, 10 or 15 different domains. Yeah, but don't sell yourself short. That's not very many people for the whole, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know. And I, I mean, it's not like, I think... I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. So you wanted to finish your thoughts oh, about well, I was Forbes. just going to say that the nice people at Forbes were were very yeah. very kind to, to us, and we kind of became friendly, and they they supported the Cordoma Foundation in in kind of a lot of ways, and you know helped make useful connections, and invited me to to other events. So, I mean, I think that I think that in retrospect, it helped early on establish credibility. It certainly opened some doors for us. But at the end of the day, the, the real drivers of progress in the Cordoma Foundation, you know, of, of the Cordoma Foundation and in, in, in the kind of progression of, of the kind of the field of Cordoma research has, has been the patient community. I mean, it's patients, it's family members, it's friends coming together, you know, with a, a common goal and, and focusing, you know, channeling their resources through the Cordoma Foundation and, and you know, through the Cordoma Foundation, focusing it, focusing those resources on driving forward like the, the most high impact research possible. And, you know, and then bringing together doctors and researchers and getting companies involved. So, yeah, I mean, I guess as much as I'd like to say that, you know, our, our success is uh, a product of the publicity. I mean, I think the reality is it's really, this, this has very much been a movement that's been driven by patients and families. And, you know, and I think that's really where the where the strength is here, and and what kind of sustains and, and keeps everything moving. Yeah, so I have 
two other two other questions for you. In the community of rare disease, is your story a common one of someone who had the disease and sort of was pulling themselves up by their own socks almost? Or is it usually a scientist or a family member of someone who was affected? Are you uncommon in this aspect? I mean, already there's probably not that many people founding these foundations, but do you know what I mean? Is your story unique in that way? So, I mean, I think everyone's story is is unique, but they follow some some similar patterns. Mm-hmm. Many of these patient organizations or disease-specific organizations are started by patients or family members. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. it's very common for it to be started by, for example, the parents of a patient. And historically, the model has been very much of uh, these organizations kind of cheering from the sidelines and playing an important role in terms of raising money and raising awareness, but not really being on the playing field, so to speak, in terms of like actually orchestrating research or or conducting research. So so that more hands-on proactive approach, let's say 13 years ago when the Cordoma Foundation was starting was the minority. Mm -hmm. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was doing it, you know, Progeria was doing it, MMRF, et cetera. But, you know, those were three and you know, maybe maybe you could count on at that point maybe two hands maybe there's 10 or a dozen organizations that were really doing that kind of hands-on research but but there were hundreds if not thousands of disease specific organizations that were not really right. doing that and i think right. there was a realization around that time that there was so much more that could be done and and in fact that patient organizations have a very important role to play and right. and when they are on the playing field and and kind of active research partners can enable progress or enable things that are not possible otherwise. Right. You know, they can focus on things that academics don't have an incentive to focus on. They can kind of use their neutrality to bring together companies right. or researchers or whomever who wouldn't ordinarily collaborate, et cetera. They, they can, for example, centralize functions or experiments that are uh, done routinely, very inefficiently in a lot of labs, but can be done much more efficiently in a centralized fashion. So yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, the aggregation, I think the centralization is something as a pathologist that I think about a lot. Yeah. Because like you said before you got before when you were researching your own condition, it was case series, right? Exactly. To look at. Exactly. Yeah. Like no single institution sees large numbers. So mm-hmm. the aggregation is, is really, really important. So now I'd say over the last dozen years or so, the the kind of the the flavor, the you know, the, the the let's call it the version of of Kind of proactive, hands-on, patient-driven research organizations that has started to become, I would say, more mainstream or more the norm. And and in fact, one of the things that I'm maybe most encouraged about in the last few years is that there's been a recognition, certainly at the at the level of the NIH, and you know among some really large kind of philanthropic organizations that that if you really want to make unlock significant progress in medical research, like building up effective patient organizations is a really, really impactful way to do it. So perhaps most notably, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. So this is like Mark uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan's philanthropy. They have invested pretty significantly in a new initiative called Rare as One. And mm-hmm. it's part of their kind of overall mission in health, which is to make all diseases curable by the end of the century. So oh. by 2100, 
they want to help facilitate all diseases to be curable, which is, you know, I mean, pretty bold and ambitious. And, you know, even with all their wealth, they're not going to, they're not going to certainly bring that about single-handedly, but they think that there's some interventions that they could help enable or support or, or kind of really, really high impact or high leverage ways that they could deploy their funds that could help increase the likelihood of, of that future you know, coming to pass. And so one of them mm-hmm. is this, this rare is one initiative where basically they want to, they want to build up effective patient organizations around lots and lots of different rare diseases. And they want to help make it easier for the next person who comes along who confronts, you know, XYZ rare disease to, you know, to, to take on starting, you know, take on their disease and start an organization to lead a, a coordinated research effort and, and right. try to shorten the learning curve. Um, sure. So, so I've, I really enjoyed kind of getting to be uh, a part of that. The kind of the genesis of, of that uh, initiative was kind of advising them over the last. Did they reach years. out to you, the the Zuckerberg people? Yeah. So the woman who runs the program, her name is Tanya Simoncelli. We've mm-hmm. connected for a while. She's phenomenal. I mean, she's just a, a real visionary. And I, this is really her. I mean, it, it's it's her idea that she, I think, sold internally uh, within CZI and has brought to fruition. And she's brought together really phenomenal people, you know, in terms of kind of advisors and thought leaders who are contributing to this, many within the kind of rare disease patient community. So kind of patients or family members like myself who have started organizations, but, you know, also a lot of people who are kind of in the general ecosystem with whom we've interacted. So for example, from the NIH within NCATS, which is National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, I believe. They have a whole focus on on rare diseases. So they've been quite involved. But anyway, I think that, I guess getting back to your your question, I think the the thing that I'm really uh, optimistic about or excited about is that whereas previously this this kind of idea of making a career out of tackling a disease was something that people only fell into by accident or it was really odd or like, you know, very atypical. Now, the ho- my hope is that through things like Rare is One, it could become more mainstream and people who are really talented, who could be doing anything, who could, you know, sure. starting companies or, you know, in finance or law or medicine or whatever, that they will yes. choose to, to you know, skip, make that- skip going into like managing hedge funds. Exactly. you know, do this. That's a very interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about it like that. But one thing that I see in pathology is, well, first of all, molecular techniques, right? 20 years ago, there weren't as many tumors because we were lumping together a bunch of things that should have been split. And the way we know that now is with molecular techniques. And it's interesting that that developed alongside the internet and increased communication, which I think without those two things, what you're doing wouldn't have been possible, right? Because you're you're centralizing a rare disease, but you're also doing it, like you said, from a neutral playing field. I think it would be harder if you were tightly linked to one academic institution to do this. But like you said, you're a patient organization. That's what drives you. It's a little bit harder for people to be territorial and for lack of a better word, nasty, about sharing data and sharing cases and sharing tumor lines when your goal is 
just to make life better for the patients and to develop the science to improve the patients' lives, right? So it's it's a really fortuitous thing that came together for you all kind of one time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you're 100% right on several fronts that that, that neutrality is absolutely essential. There needs to be yeah. a Switzerland uh, yeah. in every for every disease, because you know it, there there is there is competition and between the, as much as people like to say that they're collaborative and that you know, they are in it for purposes that are bigger than themselves. At the end of the day, people need to publish papers and get grants, right. and yeah. that's very yes. very hard yeah. to overcome. Yes. So, when you want to, right? Even when people have good intentions, it's it's hard. It is. Yeah. It's so true. I think we could have a yeah. whole other conversation on that topic. Yeah. One day, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but but you're right that I think the timing was right for us that we've been able to do so much more than could have been done in the previous decade because of yeah. the internet and all of the the tools that and the technology that's been democratized. I mean, so right. we have a basically now a, 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 a distributed team. Everything we do is in the cloud and everyone's in sync. It's been that way for, you know, for, for years now. The other thing that we're benefiting a lot from is infrastructure uh, and capabilities that have been built up over the last decade or, well, I guess maybe two, two decades now to service the pharmaceutical industry. So we work with a lot of different CROs CROs, can you? Oh, sure. To contract research organizations Mm -hmm. to perform any number of analyses. So to sequence tumors and cell lines, right? um, to generate PDX models. So a whole other effort we've undertaken in parallel to developing cell lines, developing PDX models. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. Uh, So a patient-derived xenograft model. So basically a cell line is tumor tissue taken out of a patient grown Uh on plastic. So basically on a flask or Petri dish. And and it is, you know, it has pros and cons. The pros are that it is relatively inexpensive and easy to grow. The cons are plastic is really different than, you know, the inside of a, of a patient. And so the thought is that a, a mouse provides a more realistic, is a more realistic host for the tumor than, than a flask. So so PDX model is basically patient tumor uh, taken out and implanted in a mouse without, you know, without it ever being dissociated. So it retains the, um, the kind of ultra structure, the, 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 um, uh, the micro environment that it was in um, within a patient. Sure. So, so really important for testing drugs and, and as an intermediate between cells and people. People, right. Yeah. So uh, similarly, when we started off, there were no there were no xenograft models of Cordoma zero, uh-huh. and and that was uh-huh. a big problem. I guess without getting into all the details, we found that the prize that that solution that problem was less amenable to being solved with a prize, although we uh-huh. tried. Okay. In in the end, so we we ended up only awarding two prizes for PDX models, but uh-huh. in the end, we actually did exactly what you were. Had, had proposed we do for the cell lines, which is consent patients directly to donate their tumor tissue, have yeah. that tumor tissue shipped to a centralized lab, and right. and this lab engrafted in, in mice. And thus, I think we've done about 80, we've engrafted about 80 tumors, and about a dozen of them have taken. 
Oh, wow. But still, I mean, the Delta from zero to 12, that's very impressive. It's been, yeah, it's just been game changing. So, I mean, we had access to that. I mean, I think not so long ago, that wouldn't have been something that a nonprofit could access. But so essentially, we're, we're now acting in some ways like a virtual biotech. We have PhDs, we have a PhD on staff, and we have PhDs as consultants who are now you know, when appropriate, either working with academic labs to support their work or working with contract labs, or in in many cases, it's a hybrid of the two. As an example, we're supporting now our first drug discovery project. So whereas previously everything was about repurposing existing drugs, now we're actually supporting the development of new drugs. And we're supporting a number of different projects all going after the same target. But one of them is it's really neat. It's it's three different academic sites and two different CROs in total, four different countries. And, you know, it's kind of all being orchestrated remotely. So I just think wow. that that would not have been possible by any stretch, you know, even a decade ago. Yeah. Or can you imagine trying to do all this by fax or something? <laughs> yeah. Impossible. I, don't, I just don't think it would have happened. You probably would have ended up with more neuroblastoma cell lines or something. So <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that that's all incredible. You're, you're an incredibly inspirational person. And I can say just having known you through being your friend, you don't come across as someone who's doing all of the things that now I know you're doing. I knew some of this, but I certainly didn't know all of this. Are you tired? <laughs> Are you exhausted just all the time? Well, I think are, are all these things just going on in your head all the time? Because that's a lot to think about. It's. I think. I think. I'm. I'm tired now. Being a, a, a young parent. Word. Uh, yeah. Feel which it. Which yeah. you can you can relate to. But to be honest, I never thought that I would get to experience that. So it's mm-hmm. it's just really that uh, makes it that much sweeter and and mm-hmm. more amazing. But yeah, you know, I mean, I guess in all honesty, I. One thing I think about a lot is making sure the organization passes the hit by the bus test because there are. This is something I only understand because of my husband. So this must be something that, you know, certain kinds of people like you and him understand. He had to explain to me what this means. Do you want to explain what that means? Well, basically, just that if, you know, if, if I'm running after my, my son and he <laughs> runs in front of the bus and I have to save him and, you know, get bowled over, that, uh-huh. um, the organization is going to continue on. And yes. yeah, there's, there's a lot, uh, a lot of balls in the air, a lot that we're doing yeah. and, you know, probably too much that's in my head. In fact, I mean, just in full disclosure, what I've been doing the last few days is we're, we're onboarding a, a new scientist and I, I've just been doing this like massive brain dump to try to get as much out of my head as possible and like organized and documented so that, yeah. you know, if, if I were to, you know, if I were to have a recurrence or whatever, that the organization would continue on. Because yeah. it's, as much as I thought at the outset when I started 13 years ago, that maybe there was a chance that we would, we would find therapies in time for, you know, if, for, for patients who were alive then. I think it turns out that, not surprisingly, in retrospect, Research and drug discovery and 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 curing a rare disease is a, is a long term endeavor. And I've been really yes. fortunate; my tumor hasn't come back, and I've far outlived now the median survival and like what I had ever dreamed of when I was diagnosed. 
and you know, and, and in some ways we've made more progress than I would have imagined. But I think what it's this kind of weird paradox where we we've both made more progress than I would have imagined, but also the path turns out to be longer and more circuitous than I would have imagined. So it's just yeah, it's just really important that the organization be able to carry on. And I think we're getting to that point. We're not 100% there yeah. yet, but we're getting there. It's hard. It's hard to start something new, I imagine, and and be operating on a shoestring budget and be motivated by the fire in your belly and be taking on that responsibility almost as a proof of concept, you know, to show people it can be done and then to disseminate that knowledge and hand it down and pass it off to other people. It becomes not only logistically difficult, but probably also emotionally difficult in a certain way to sort of let go a little bit, although I'm sure the volume of what you're doing necessitated that. But 13 years is a long time to be doing this full time, which I assume you've been doing it full time the entire 13 years. So very impressive. And you, like you mentioned, you're a new parent and we've all been living through a pandemic. So it's just sort of layered on top of itself, right? Like a Jenga tower. So um, yeah, well, well said. Well said. Yeah. Although yeah. I, I feel so grateful that mm-hmm. this work can be done from anywhere, and I've yeah. kind of been able. We, I mean, the foundation's basically been able to carry on without really missing a beat. I hope you said you were already centralized, right? You already had folks working kind of all over remotely. Exactly. Yeah, we we're yeah. completely set up for it. I mean, the biggest challenge is going to be keeping up fundraising absent in-person interaction. So sure. a lot of the travel that I was doing was to meet with donors, to go to mm-hmm. events, for example. So you know, people aren't doing in-person fundraisers, for example, anymore. But everyone's trying to be creative. And amazingly, I mean, like really amazingly, we ended up, we ended the year, it certainly wasn't our best year, but it was, it was not nearly as bad as I feared nine months right. ago. Sure. It's really encouraging. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. So is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important for your story? Uh, man, there's so much more we could talk about. But I mean, I think the yeah. main thing is, is that the thing that I think that I'm really excited about, uh, and mm-hmm. I think could be relevant for perhaps others who are interested in oncology or medicine or drug discovery is, is this, this drug discovery effort that I, I kind of alluded to. It's, mm-hmm directed at uh, a target that heretofore has been thought of as undruggable. So maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you even used it to diagnose chordoma. It's, it's brachyuri. Brachyuri, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> That's the thing we all know about chordoma now, <laughs> brachyuri, because there's an IHC for it. Right? But it's amazing how quickly that is disseminated. So the, the, yeah. the, I, I hope someone at some point will write a story about brachyuri because uh-huh. – its origins are quite interesting, but the the paper that resulted in brachyuri being used as basically the pathognomonic diagnostic tool for, for chordoma was published uh-huh. in May of 2006 when I was in the hospital. So like, as, oh my gosh. like when, like when I found out I had chordoma, that was like one of the first papers that I read. It was published by a bone pathologist at UCL in London named Adrian Flanagan. And so she basically the story was she she had a lot had a lot of sarcomas and she micro gene expression microarrays were becoming big at the time and so she threw about a hundred sarcomas on gene expression microarrays and compared them and 
found basically that Cordamus had this very unique gene expression signature, most notably that brachyuria was highly expressed in Cordama and not expressed in anything else. Mm-hmm. So parenthetically, that that paper basically inspired the work that I was, most of the work that I was doing in the lab at Duke, which was to try to shut off brachyuri in Cordama cells, because it turns out that brachyuri is, not only is it just present in Cordama, but the the tissue from which Cordamas are derived from, uh, from notochord seems to be dependent upon brachyuri for its development. And so oh, the, okay. the, the question was like, is it would be a brachy- helpful thing to turn off then? Yeah. Right. Is it also yeah. essential in Cordoma? And ultimately, the answer is yes. It, it, Cordoma is completely dependent upon brachyuri. It's it's basically the the it's a master transcription factor that defines essentially the notochord phenotype and and then I guess by extension the the Cordoma phenotype. And if you knock down brachyuri, then Cordomas basically are they can't survive. So you're 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 involved now in finding a drug to target brachyuri. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So because it's, it's a transcription factor, it had been historically considered a very difficult drug target. But over the last several years, there have been a number of new technologies that have emerged that start to kind of make it possible to question that assumption. The interesting thing is it's also turned out that even though we still think of brachyuria as the diagnostic marker for chordoma, it turns out that it is actually expressed in a lot of other cancers as well. So in a decent subset of lung cancers and in breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer in particular, there's about a, about a dozen other tumor types in which it's expressed. And it seems to play a role in those other tumors in, in enabling epithelial to mesenchymal transition. Mm. In the, so it's a slightly different role than it plays in chordoma. But nonetheless, we're, we've kind of undertaken this effort to apply some of these new technologies to drugging brachyuri. And the hope is that when, if and when successful, that that will not only serve as a treatment for chordoma, but could play a role in the treatment of some of these other tumor types as well. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot of learning. A lot of learning. So, well, Josh, I appreciate you doing this. I know you're a very busy person, although it's hard to be both trapped in your house and busy, although we all seem to be managing it quite well. But I appreciate you doing this. I know we've been trying to connect for a while. So, yeah, it was thank fun. You. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks, Tyler. Bye. Bye.